Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 2017 Dudleyan Lecture. Uh, I'm David Hempton, and as Dean of the uh, Divinity School, it's a pleasure to welcome you uh, this evening and, and to introduce the Dudleyan Lectures to you. Uh, my special thanks go to the Office for Academic Affairs for organizing uh, this event. Before we start, if I could just make a couple of housekeeping announcements. Um, could you please check and ensure that your cell phones and mobile devices are off? Thank you. And for your information, we're uh, videotaping the lecture and it will be posted on our website as soon as we can uh, get it there. So let me first talk a little bit about the oldest and most distinguished endowed lecturer at Harvard, the Dudleyan Lecture, and the donor who had this genius idea 267 years ago. The lecture was endowed by Paul Dudley in 1750 with the sum of 133 pounds, six shillings and eight pence which was um, a fortune then, of course. Uh, Dudley was born in 1675, and after graduating from Harvard in 1690, things happened fast in those days, he studied law at the Temple in London. Uh, he returned to Boston, where he became Attorney General and eventually Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Probably couldn't even get nominated now. Um, he died in 1751. And this annual lecture perpetuates his memory and his generosity. So our speaker this evening is our distinguished alumnus, uh, Dr. Tyler Roberts, Professor of Religious Studies at Grinnell College. We're delighted to have Dr. Roberts back at HDS for this evening's lecture, which is entitled Signs of Life, Fidelity, Theology, and Critique. So welcome back. It's great to have you. This evening, my colleague, Professor Charles Stang, Professor of Early Christian Thought, will introduce our speaker. Um, uh, Charlie Stein joined the Faculty of Divinity in 2008, and his research and teaching focus is on the history and theology of Christianity in late antiquity, especially Eastern varieties um, of Christianity. Uh, more especially, he's interested in the development of asceticism, monasticism, and mysticism in Eastern Christianity. He's the author and editor of um, many important books, uh, most recently, Our Divine Double, Harvard University Press, um, uh, uh, 2016. His current uh, projects include a book on the problem of evil in Christianity and Neoplatonism entitled Beyond God and Evil, also to be published by Harvard University Press. So it's now pleasure, my pleasure to invite um, Professor Stein to the podium to introduce our speaker. Charlie, thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you all for coming out this evening for the Dudleyan Lecture. Professor Tyler Roberts is well known to many of you because he, as David has already said, is an alumnus of this very school, having earned his THD here in 1993. I too have a THD from this esteemed institution. And those of us who have this peculiar degree have a certain affinity each other, a, a kind of esprit de corps, owing to the fact that we have had to explain countless times what this degree is in professional and family gatherings. Um, I used to regret this fact, but then a few years ago I was watching The Wizard of Oz with my daughter. At the end of the movie, the wizard gives the scarecrow a degree, the THD, a doctorate in thinkology. So, uh, so while the, the rest of, uh, well, many of my poor colleagues 
have only a doctorate in philosophy. I'm sorry, David, that's what you have. Uh, Tyler and I are accredited thinkologists. <laughs> he more accomplished in that discipline than I. After his degree, Tyler stayed on at Harvard as the director of undergraduate studies, which was then called head tutor. And that's where I came to know him. I was an undergraduate concentrator in philosophy who was seeing the study of religion on the side. Tyler became one of my teachers and mentors. And to cut a very long story short, Tyler was instrumental in uh, my own conversion to religious studies. He's significantly responsible for my being happily placed in the study of religion rather than unhappily at the margins of academic philosophy. And so I am in his debt. I don't know if the field is, but <laughs> I am. It was in those years that, uh, at Harvard that Tyler wrote um, his first book, Contesting Spirit, Nietzsche, Affirmation, Religion. This book wrestles with the sense that many readers have that Nietzsche, perhaps the preeminent modern critique, uh, critic of religion, I'm sorry, and a self-described antichrist, is himself somehow a deeply religious thinker, perhaps in some way a Christian thinker. But how to speak responsibly of that elusive quality of Nietzsche's religiosity, or perhaps his post-religiosity? In his book, Tyler manages to do so, partly by a capacious understanding of religion and partly by situating Nietzsche in the long traditions and practices of asceticism and mysticism. I read it when it first came out in 1998, and I've had occasion to reread it this past week in, in anticipation of Tyler's visit. He's graciously uh, agreed to visit my seminar on Nietzsche tomorrow morning and lead a discussion of his book. Um, or so I think. Right? <laughs> Maybe lead is perhaps the wrong verb. <laughs> Um, it's been, uh, but it's been rewarding to return to this book after 20 years, even though it's also somewhat frightening to utter that sentence that I'm returning to books 20 years ago and when I still regarded myself as an adult. Um, but it's a wise book. It's judiciously argued, and it is beautifully written. Tyler eventually left Harvard Shores in 1998 for the unbroken horizons of the Midwest, Grinnell College in Iowa. The Midwest is another thing we have in common, except that I grew up there and left. Um, at Grinnell, Tyler is professor, of, uh, professor in the Department of Religious Studies, and in his more recent work, he stepped into a different fray, namely the contemporary debate over whether and how we can or even should distinguish the secular from the religious. In 2013, he published Encountering Religion, Responsibility and Criticism After Secularism in which he argues, in his words now, that, quote, the artificial distinction between a self-conscious and critical academic study of religion and an ideological and authoritarian religion only obscures the phenomenon. Instead, uh, Tyler calls on intellectuals to approach the field as a site of encounter and response, illuminating the agency, creativity, and critical awareness of religious actors. Encountering religion has been very well received. Chuck Matthews of the University of Virginia says of it, Tyler Roberts' work is the single most consequential programmatic work in the study of religion, on the study of religion, in the past several decades. It marks the first fully realized humanistic account of the study of religion, and thereby the opening of a new era in the history of the field. I couldn't agree more. And judging from what I think Tyler is going to tackle this evening, 
I expect you will soon agree too. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Tyler Roberts for his lecture, Signs of Life, Fidelity, Theology, and Critique. Thank you, Tyler. Well, thank you very much, Charlie. Um, that's a very gracious introduction. Um, and I want to thank uh, the HDS community for a warm welcome and for the honor of giving the Dudleyan lecture. Um, I want to thank Karen, Karen, she's here, um, for making all the arrangements and getting me here in one piece. Um, I got lost walking over from Oxford Street because back in my day there was just a huge parking lot back there. <laughs> and now it's a maze. Uh, but I did make it, so thank you, Karen. Um, I was going to say something about it being a warm welcome, but um, I've been here five days and I've seen the sun for 15 minutes. Um, I really miss New England Springs. <laughs> so good afternoon. Um, it's an immense pleasure to be back here. Uh, I'm thrilled to see um, many familiar faces, uh, former students and teachers, uh, former, fr uh, former friends, old friends, <laughs> still friends. Um, Place looks uh, mostly the same. Um, Sperry room looks the same, although the seats used to be red. Um, this is where I began here at the Divinity School in the Sperry room. Um, I arrived here in the fall of 1985. Um, it was very unexpected for me that I would be here, but I did come in the fall of 1985. I think that semester, um, Margaret Miles' History of Christian Thought One was one of the courses, um, and Dick Niebuhr's lectures on Kant, Coleridge, and Schleiermacher uh, was also in this room um, that fall. Um, I remember a, a very intense weekend in my apartment in Porter Square uh, where all of a sudden Kant's second critique made some sense to me. Uh, the, the beautiful rigor of, of it made, made sense to me, and it was uh, a, sort of my first uh, feeling that this was, this is what I should be doing, uh, except that it was a, a very frantic weekend because the paper I was writing on Kant kept getting lost. I was trying to figure out my new Mac, <laughs> and it kept deleting. Um, anyway, I want to start with, with another memory, although this one takes me back uh, a lot further. Uh, I said, just said that I was surprised to find myself at the Divinity School in the fall of 1985. Uh, this is because growing up in Providence, Rhode Island, and in Vermont, religion was pretty much invisible to me. There was a little Unitarian Sunday School when I was very young, and I guess I registered vaguely um, that some of the differences between me and my Jewish friends had something to do with religion, although I wasn't really clear on that. Uh, the, for the most part, the world I lived in was a very secular one. My only real exposure to religion was when I would go visit my grandparents on my dad's side, uh, whom we always called Polly and Bill. For me and my siblings, they were the fun grandparents because they knew how to play and they knew how to engage our sense of wonder and adventure. But they were serious Christian scientists, especially Polly. And they had been, uh, at least as far as the story goes, since uh, my father recovered from a serious childhood illness with the help of a Christian science practitioner. So even though we were always excited to visit them, the visits weren't without their anxieties and their chores. We didn't want to get a cold or a headache. 
because we knew that the remedy would be prayer and not aspirin. And they made us go to Sunday school, which we didn't like because we didn't know any of the other kids. And we had to spend part of Saturday night going over Bible lessons with Polly. But the memory I uh, most hold on to from those visits involved a, a nightly bedtime ritual. At least until I was 10 or 11, when Polly would come to say goodnight, she would sit on the side of my bed and she would say, now Tyler, tell me, what are you grateful for tonight? Knowing this was coming every night during our visits made me anxious. I had to come up with something and I had to sound sincere. First night of our visits was always relatively easy because I could say, I'm grateful I get to visit you and Grandpa Bill. After that, it got harder and I had to do some thinking. What was I grateful for? Uh, this ritual has stayed with me and I've thought about it a lot in recent years. Polly was a fiercely intelligent and a very soulful woman. And I am sure she knew that for me, as a typical child growing up in a privileged but spiritually adrift circumstances, gratitude was a rather alien feeling. So I suspect that she was not too interested in how I happened to feel on any given day, but rather more in teaching me how to feel and how to reflect thoughtfully on my life. That is, she was trying to initiate me into a practice of attention and discernment, to teach me to see the world and my life as something I would find reason to be thankful for, to enliven my attachments to myself, to others, to the world. And she really hoped to God. I want to say now that among other things, she was giving me my first lesson in critical thinking. As an introduction to this afternoon's lecture, this story does a couple of things. First, it helps me pose a question. The Dudleyan lectures, as we've heard, were established in 1755 with the stipulation that each year's lecture would address one of four topics. According to the rotation, this year's topic is natural religion. I have to confess that before I was informed that this lecture should at least gesture toward this topic, I'd never spent any focused time thinking about natural religion. I've come to realize, though, that that was um, sort of dumb. <laughs> given the kinds of things uh, I've worked on during my academic career. One of my primary scholarly interests is in how, particularly in the modern West, but also globally in both colonial and post-colonial contexts, philosophers, theologians, social critics, and government officials, among others, have drawn the lines between the secular and the religious. In particular, I spent a lot of time considering how thinkers that we tend to view as non-religious or atheistic, employ, translate, figure, and refigure religious categories, themes, and tropes in their writing. So for example, as uh, Charlie uh, spoke of, my first book argued that reading Nietzsche as a simple atheist ignores the way that he complicates and questions modern boundaries between the religious and the secular, or between religion and non-religion. In this sense, I work as something like an intellectual historian thinking about what religion has come to mean for our world today. I've also worked in what I might describe as a more normative mode, exploring how religious ideas and practices can have meaning for and shape the lives of those who do not identify wholly or even at all with particular religious formations. Here, the personal and the academic really intersect for me. I don't identify as religious, but many of the deepest lessons I've learned, not just about religion or Christianity, but about myself, in our world have come from thinkers such as Augustine, Bart, Simone Weil, and my grandmother Polly. Here too, I see myself working at the boundaries of the secular and the religious, but in this case, I'm thinking not so much about religion, but with religion. 
asking what theologians and others have to teach those of us who live, think, feel, and wonder primarily in a secular world. Which brings me to my question. I won't propose to answer it or even really develop it too much this afternoon, though I do want it to hover in the background, uh, and we can come back to it if, if we want to. As I work at the boundaries of the secular and the religious, even to the point of questioning the usefulness of these categories, and as I ask what Christian thinkers have to teach all of us about living a human life, what kinds of acts of translation am I involved in? Uh, in her generous and insightful engagement with my recent book, In the Introduction to Acute Melancholia, Amy Hollywood asks whether what she describes as my, quote, naturalizing humanistic accounts of religion, end of quote, are adequate to their object. When I read this, my first response was not to try to answer Amy's question, though it's a good one, but to ask myself, was I, in fact, offering naturalistic and or humanistic accounts of religion? I'm not sure I have an answer to this question, or to a further question, namely, when I consider what Christianity might have to teach the secular world, am I imagining or moving towards some sort of natural religion? And let's make the question more concrete to introduce my topic for today. I'll be arguing that Christian theology has something important to teach us about critique, that we can expand and deepen our understanding of what it is to engage in the critical enterprise by thinking through concepts such as trust, fidelity, and grace. Do these concepts and the practices that follow from them lose their particular Christian character or even religious character in the process? And if so, what then? As I said, I'll leave this question hovering in the background. We can return to it later. Um, but now let me talk a little bit about critique. Among other things, to think critically, to engage in criticism or critique, and we can also talk about the difference between those terms, uh, is to examine the bonds or attachments that tie us to the world and to each other. In academic context, we deploy critique to expose and interrogate the causes and conditions of those bonds and attachments, to ask whether they imp are imposed upon us by powers and interests of which we are not aware, with the idea that critique can help to free us from oppressive attachments, obligations, and demands. What I want to argue, though, is that it it's just that it is just as important to think about critique as a mode of identifying those bonds and attachments that themselves are freeing and life-giving and to cultivate them, work them out, deepen and strengthen them. When I said a moment ago that my grandmother Polly was teaching me to think critically, I meant something like this. She was instructing me in a fundamental form of attachment to the world and to my life. She wanted to help me develop a disposition and the analytic and reflective skills by which I would uncover connections and dependencies that might not always be obvious. And she was teaching me to assent to and cultivate these connections and dependencies in a way that would enliven and transform my sense of the world and my relations with others. She was teaching me to gesture to the title of this talk, to attend to signs of life and to think critically about and with them. One of the starting points for my book, Encountering Religion, was my dissatisfaction with the strategies by which scholars of religion have deployed the concept of the critical to, ex to legitimize the study of religion as a properly academic enterprise. Many of those who have been the most interested in such legitimation have for a long time focused their efforts on building walls between the study of religion and theology. 
The critical, or more accurately, more accurately, at least from the perspective of such scholars, the non-critical nature of theological discourse is part of what has been staked in these discussions. In his well-known Theses on Method, uh, and I think I have this here, um, historian of religion Bruce Lincoln contrasts the discourse of history as an academic enterprise with what he calls the discourse of religion. Historians, he writes, quote, speak of things temporal and terrestrial in a human infallible voice while staking their claims to authority on rigorous critical practice. By contrast, religion, he says, speaks of things eternal and transcendent with an authority equally transcendent and eternal. For Lincoln, the academic study of religion is rigorously critical because it acknowledges its own fallibility and it is thus open to response, question, and, con and correction. But in claiming transcendent authority, religious discourse closes itself to critical questioning, refuses the human back and forth of argument. It therefore, for Lincoln, is essentially non-critical. The strategy of making religion the other of critical thinking is also employed by those outside the study of religion. For instance, the literary critic, Stathis Grigoris. For some time now, initially in response to a series of posts on the imminent frame, then in debate with Saba Mahmoud in the pages of Public Culture, uh, and more re most recently in his book, Lessons in Secular Criticism, Grigoris has insisted on the secular nature of critique. For him, Marx was right in his claim that the premise of all criticism is the criticism of religion. Religion, Grigoris argues, is the paradigmatic, or to use his words, the most archaic, most consistent, and arguably most effective mode, end of quote, by which human beings mystify their own work of social formation, hiding it from themselves in order to find security in unquestionable foundations. On this view, genuine, that is to say, secular criticism begins by dispelling the original religious mystifications as a first step by which human beings can liberate themselves for an autonomous human politics. It is, of course, a good thing that we have developed methods to identify, diagnose, and question discourses and practices by which people and institutions ground social authority. And I take it to be uncontroversial to say that religious discourses of all sorts have contributed much to the mystifications at work in just about every society we know about. However, by trading in binaries such as open-closed, transgression authority, autonomy heteronomy, and critique credulity, scholars such as Lincoln and Gregoras do a bad job of theorizing religion because they posit it simply as a discourse of placement, stability, and closure, tying it thereby to exclusivism, authoritarianism, and heteronomy. In doing so, they do more to bolster secular ideologies than to help us think carefully and richly about religion in all its heterogeneity. If we're inclined, as I am, to question this view of religion, we will also want to ask about critique and about related concepts such as autonomy, freedom, and politics. This will not only add complexity to our theories of religion, but will help us to enrich our critical theories, concepts, and terminologies. We should start, I think, by turning away from, the, from founding our critical practice on the critique of religion, and instead explore what various religious traditions might have to teach us about criticism about, for instance, those ideas and practices related to modes of perception and attention, to spiritual exercise, and to commitment and fidelity. We should consider critique, that is, not just as a matter of analyzing, exposing, and debunking, but also as a practice by which we give ourselves to what is beautiful, worthy, and meaningful, even divine or sacred. If I had more time today, 
I would at this point map my own approach to critique with respect to the work of thinkers such as Saba Mahmoud, Amy Hollywood, Michael Warner, and Rita Felsky. I've learned a lot from each of them. But here I'll just offer as a point of departure <clears throat> Bruno Latour's claim that um, emancipation does not mean freed from bonds, but well attached. Too often, critical theories leave us with concepts of liberation and autonomy that don't do enough to explain what it is to be well attached. That is, to be tied in a life-giving manner to other people, ideals, and social groups. For instance, they don't grapple adequately with the fact that to be motivated by or to desire something is, at least to some significant degree, to be compelled or seized by something that one does not control. This, of course, can lead us in dangerous directions, and it can be extremely difficult to draw the line between destructive compulsions and life-giving passions. But we fall in love. We are called to serve. We find things meaningful. These things happen to us. What is criticism in the face of this? How, we might, how might we think critique through and not just against such bonds and attachments? Can we think about critique not just a mode of, as a mode of questioning our bonds and attachments, but as the careful work of determining just how and when to acknowledge the limits of autonomy, and from there affirm and work out life-giving dependencies? To begin uh, to address these questions, I'll start with the epigraph to this paper. Let me just go backwards here to get to Foucault. I can't help but dream, Foucault writes, about a criticism that would try not to judge, but to bring in a book, Ascendance, an idea to life. It would multiply not judgments, but signs of life. For a long time, I stumbled over this contrast, for it seemed to me that as expressions of thought and commitment, judgments are signs of life. When I make a judgment, I move from observation and analysis and critique to decision. In doing so, I venture myself. I step out on my own and into my own. I continue to think that there is truth to this, but I've found Judith Butler's efforts to work through Foucault's writing on critique helpful not only for explaining the difference between critique and judgment, but also for helping to give some concreteness to the idea of criticism as multiplying signs of life. Butler connects Foucault in a, to uh, uh, Theodore Adorno and Raymond Williams, both of whom argue that critique, insofar as it works at the limits of the categories that make judgments possible, must suspend or refuse judgment. Critique, Butler writes, critique, Butler writes, does not, quote, comply with a given category, but rather constitutes an interrogatory relation to the field of categorization itself. And for Foucault, she goes on to argue, critique not only is a matter of questioning our epistemological, but also our ethical and existential categories, and thus our sense of who we are. Since we come into our own through thinking, speaking, and living with such categories, critique to some significant extent at least, as Foucault puts it, would quote, essentially ensure the desubjugation of the subject in the context of what we would call, in a word, the politics of truth. So rather than stepping out into our own through critique to judgment, ownness or a sense of oneself as a coherent subject is for Butler and Foucault precisely what we risk when we engage in critique. And given this conception of critique, Foucault's care of the self, which he views as a critical project, cannot ground its resistance or its creativity in codes of law or a theory of human rights or in some sort of foundational subject. These observations and questions lead Butler 
to Foucault's claim that critique is a form of virtue. As an initial characterization, we can say that this virtue is a practice of placing oneself in an ontologically insecure position. Those are, those are Butler's words. Um, and resisting established order. But why? With what end in mind? On Butler's reading, Foucault at this point, with much tentativeness and hesitation, withdrawing it even as he ventures it, invokes something like an originary freedom. That is to say, freedom for Foucault is, in Butler's words, a value that the critic does not know how to ground or to secure for oneself. To put it more positively, I'd offer that freedom for Foucault is a sign of life. That is, a trace or a fleeting glimpse of new possibility on the boundary of established orders and ways of being. By casting critique as virtue, Foucault and Butler shift the concept of critique from a metho met methodical exposure of conditions and limits to a more constructive and a much more delicate practice of attention to these signs of life. The critic multiplies or amplifies these signs of life in caring for the self. Such critique, Butler says, is a singular sense of poesis. Butler takes Foucault's virtue further in her reflections on dependence and desubjugation in her book, Giving an Account of Oneself. There she faults Foucault for not giving adequate attention to the role of the other in the formation of the self. She argues with Levinas and Laplanche that from the very beginning of our lives, we are immersed in webs of primal relationality forged at the permeable boundaries of body and psyche. Along with other factors, <clears throat> this primal relationality makes it impossible for us to ever fully grasp, narrate, or account for ourselves. She writes, we could wish ourselves to be wholly perspicacious beings, but that would be to disavow infancy, dependency, relationality, primary impressionability. It would be to wish to be the kind of beings who, by definition, could not be in love, blind and blinded, vulnerable to devastation, subject to enthrallment. Any kind of truthful account of ourselves must therefore mark its own failure, and any critical inquiry into the causes and conditions of our lives and our societies will run up against this fundamental opacity to ourselves and to others. Butler's project, then, is to construct an ethics on the basis of understanding and affirming this opacity, an ethic that she describes as emerging from the regions of the unwilled. We risk ourselves, she writes, precisely at moments of unknowingness, when what forms us diverges from what lies before us, when our willingness to become undone in relation to others constitutes our chance of being human. To be undone by another is a primary necessity, an anguish to be sure, but also a chance to be addressed, claimed, bound to what is not me, but also to be moved, to be prompted to act, to address myself elsewhere, and so to vacate the self-sufficient I as a kind of possession. For Butler, this unknowingness, this opacity, is not a barrier to, but in fact a crucial condition of one's self, sense of self, and one's ability to recognize and relate to others. In other words, it is an ethic based on a form of recognition for others that gives life by acknowledging that our lives always exceed our categories of identity, that we are, each of us, singular and in some respects lost to our own singularity. So it is an ethic beyond ethics in the sense that it balances ethical judgment with virtues such as patience and forgiveness, virtues that confer recognition in and through deferring or even suspending judgment out of a sense of fidelity to the humanity of the other. 
Critique on this reading continues to inquire into the social conditions that form us as selves, but its goal is no longer a complete and transparent account of those conditions as the ground for responsibility and autonomy. Instead, it becomes a mode of attention to and cultivation of life-giving dependencies and relationships. If Foucault is appealing to freedom in thinking critique as virtue, Butler is thinking freedom in terms of being well-attached and critique as a practice of such attachment. In Foucault and Butler, words such as freedom, humanity, and life serve as kinds of placeholders which is to say that they are gestures towards something that they cannot fully articulate, something in which they seem to find hope for something better. Thus, critique as virtue takes the form of a kind of faith, what I'll call critical fidelity. In critics such as Lincoln and Gregoras, faith can only mean something like unwavering and uncritical commitment to some form of transcendental authorization. But in Foucault and Butler, critical fidelity follows and creates out of singular expressions of desire creativity, or love. I want at this point to begin pushing this conception of virtue in a more explicit theological direction by looking at Ted Smith's reflections on the actions and legacy of John Brown and his raid on Harper's Ferry. In Weird John Brown, Smith employs the resources of political theology to ask how we might understand this event and place ourselves and our politics in relation to it. Underlying Smith's project, I'll suggest, is a question that I think needs to be at the heart of any contemporary effort to rethink critique. Namely, how do we think critique constructively? That is, how do we link our efforts to expose and understand the workings of knowledge and social formation to practices by which we forge life-giving bonds and commitments with one another? Accordingly, my reading of Smith emphasizes the way that he takes um, that his uh, emphasizes the way that his take on political theology identifies and enacts what he calls responsibility beyond the law. This, I want to say, is a theological version of Butler's critique as virtue. It is a form of responsibility by which we think and enact forms of obligation that cannot be reduced to ethical and legal categories. It is what Smith calls free response, guided by fidelity to the abiding presence of God's kingdom. In general terms, with which I'm sure many of you are familiar, political theology is a discourse organized around the concepts of sovereignty and exception. As Carl Schmitt, the thinker most responsible for reviving political theology in the 20th century, famously puts it, sovereign is he who decides the exception. Depending on the particular form of politics in question, the sovereign can be God or a monarch who speaks in the name of God the popular sovereignty of a people, or a president with the power of pardon. Sovereign exercises of power as decision, decisions for the exception at once transcend, violate, and ground the political, legal, and ethical orders they found and head. As an example, we can think about the divine miracle that both violates the natural order, but in that very violation confirms its regularity. Or we can think about those decisions and political processes by which the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution came into existence, forging a legal and political order by acts that were not authorized by that order. For the most part, modern political and legal theories have tended to keep such processes and decisions obscured, with the insistence that modern political orders are wholly imminent. But political theology, beginning with Schmidt, has worked to expose traces of divine sovereignty at work in secular politics and the work of myth-making by which those traces are obscured. 
Political theology in the hands of Ted Smith does more than identify the workings of sovereignty. It is a mode of critical reasoning about sovereign exception, an exercise of virtue, and this is a word that Smith himself uses, uh, that supplements the procedures of institutional law and ethical reasoning. For Smith, the question at the heart of weird John Brown is whether Brown and his fellow raiders should be pardoned. A decision for pardon, as I will explain in more detail momentarily, is a, is a decision for exception because the raid on Harper's Ferry, Smith insists, was an act of murder and treason. But before addressing Smith's reasoning about this particular exception, it is necessary to consider how, for him, reasoning about exception is theological. A starting point is the distinction Smith makes between the political theologies of Carl Schmitt and Walter Benjamin. Both question modernity's efforts to develop wholly imminent systems of law and ethics. But Schmidt, a member of the Nazi party writing in the 1930s, essentially collapses the divine into the worldly by assigning the sovereign function to God's representative on earth, whether that's a monarch or, in his case, a Fuhrer. Benjamin, however, argues that such conceptions of sovereignty and all imminent political and legal orders produce what he calls mythic violence. For Benjamin, any given social or legal order is, to use his words, the congealed spoils of violence. Conceived as purely imminent, such orders become their own justification, find their only ends in themselves, and thus will justify any means necessary for their preservation, violence to preserve the spoils of violence. Benjamin thus insists that sovereignty, as what he calls divine violence, operates only to interrupt this vicious cycle. As Smith puts it, as Smith puts it, divine violence unmasks the collusion of fate and violence within the law, the undo, the, uh, thus undoing the binding power of the law. Or to be more precise, divine violence undoes the absolute quality of earthly law. It works against the way law captures us and compels our obedience. It does not delegitimize law, but rather relieves it of its deep amalgamation with violence. Indeed, Smith cautions that invoking divine violence is always risky and must be done with the utmost care, for it is a matter of identifying those acts or events that real, reveal the limits of otherwise legitimate laws and obligations. In doing so, though, it changes the way we relate to the law and think and act beyond it. Divine violence, Smith writes, offers not legitimation but renewed occasions for responsibility. It breaks the binding obligations of an order that lets a person evade responsibility by saying, I am just following the law. We find here, as in many contemporary political theologies, echoes of Paul on grace and law, of a grace that frees us not from law per se, but from the anxiety, guilt, and violence that binds us to it. When we are relieved of these bonds, we enter a space in which we relate to others and engage the social order beyond law and ethics, a space of responsibility that Smith describes as free response forged in and through fidelity to higher law. That such response and responsibility is free means that higher law does not take the form of a new divine code, a new divine code of law, or that theology is used to justify such codes. Political theology for Smith is a matter of thinking higher law in the indicative rather than in the imperative tense, in terms of messianic, not theocratic politics. In other words, higher law demands fidelity, not obedience. It invites free human response, that is, fallible and particular response, to the abiding presence of God's kingdom. 
How exactly does this help us think about the legacy of John Brown in the raid on Harper's Ferry? Smith argues that Brown <clears throat> and his fellow raiders should be pardoned. How might we reason about such a pardon? We might reject the possibility of pardon by representing Brown as a religious fanatic who not only received his due punishment, but whose ideas and acts should be excluded from political debate as an example of the toxic mixture of religion and politics. Alternatively, we might argue for a pardon in ethical terms, re-narrating the act as ethically justified. Smith rejects both options. He offers instead a critical reading of the raid that does not try to justify it, but argues that it should be forgiven. Pardoning the raid as a free response to it, he argues, would make it legible in a way that is not possible when thinking about it only in terms of legal and ethical categories. It allows us to think about it as a manifestation of divine violence, a sign of God's judgment, though in the form of a fallen, even if faithful, act. Smith's free response considers first that Brown's life before the raid was guided by a social imaginary made manifest in uh, what he describes as the rich neighbor love that flourished in the little community of black and white households that Brown created many years before in the Adirondacks. Second, Smith's response to the raid places its violence in the context of the violence of slavery. The raid intervened in a world out of joint, a world violated and distorted, in which slavery was the law. A world, that is, in which measured or legal responses to slavery only ended up colluding with it. A pardon, Smith argues, would intervene in this violence and the way it continues to shape us and our national memory. Like God's pardon of Cain, it would be a step towards ending cycles of retribution that continue to resonate in American society today. It would allow us to tell a more truthful story where the raid was a mad response to a deeper madness, and it would thus open the possibility of a present-day politics that would allow us to move into the future less controlled by the past. Brown also argues, though, that to pardon Smith is, of course, not to pardon slavery. A president might be able to pardon Brown for his crimes against the state, and such a pardon might have salutary effects. But slavery was not a crime against the state, but a crime committed by the state. And a state can't forgive itself. Any forgiveness for slavery, if indeed there is any, could only come from God. And though I won't rehearse the argument here, it could only come for Smith from a crucified God. That is, a new politics, at least for those who have benefited from slavery, has to take the form of a politics of penitence. Because he follows Benjamin's concept of divine violence, where God's sovereignty interrupts to negate human violence, Smith's political theology has a critical intensity that refuses cheap grace and easy redemption. At the same time, it is crucial to note that as a form of critical reasoning, his political the theology does not just name the raid as divine violence, but thinks through pardon and thus participates in a politics of penitence by offering a response to the raid that itself is part of the process by which God's grace becomes manifest in the world. Smith is working out whether in this particular context, the raid and the continuing violent legacy of slavery whether God's grace can be discerned, and if so, what it is to stay faithful to this God. That is, as I've already noted, Smith's criticism becomes a kind of fidelity to God's abiding presence, to what he calls the indicative of divine reconciliation. God is present, he writes, not where the world lives up to some imperative that God has given, but in the fact of free response to the messianic fulfillment of the law. 
If some or all of those responses fail to measure up to the ethics implicit in fulfillment, it does not mean that the law is any less fulfilled or that God is any less present. For the presence of God does not depend on relations of identity. On the contrary, to say that God is gracious is to say that God remains present to creatures and institutions that are not identical with God. If I have a criticism of Smith, it is that his attention to negation at times threatened to threatens to obscure the full range of his critical vision and the resources it offers for thinking this future. In the case of John Brown, Smith's reasoning is attuned not just to the violence of the raid, but also to Brown's practice of rich neighbor love as a sign of the messianic fulfillment of the law. To conclude my talk, then, I want to connect this line of thinking to my thoughts on attachment that I introduced earlier. Again, Bruno Latour, emancipation does not mean freed from, does not mean freed from bonds, but well attached. Even as divine violence exposes a world out of joint, free response as critical fidelity identifies and follows signs of life, signs of right or flourishing life, such as rich neighbor love, as much as signs of judgment. It is a discipline of attention and imagination that identifies and works out life-giving attachments to others, to the world, and to God. Smith characterizes free response as a form of reasoning attuned to singularity a form more like erotics and aesthetics than an ethics of generalizable norms. I would say that it's like aesthetics in the following sense. Among other things, aesthetic criticism is a matter of following a sense of beauty and meaning into a work of art. Something strikes us, attracts us, sets off sparks. We find ourselves affected, and this leads us to direct and intensify our attention and to measure and test, elaborate and question both the work and our attraction to it. Of course, this is not to say that we engage in aesthetic criticism only when we happen to be affected by a work of art, for many of us develop practices of attention that make us susceptible to being affected by, the beauty, by beauty in certain ways. Aesthetic criticism is itself such a practice, and it is one through which the critic not only engages works of art, but shares them and his or her response to them with others. With such free response, to use Smith's term, the critic identifies and further cultivates his or her attachments not only to a particular artwork, but to the world and to others. Stanley Cavell describes such criticism as a conduct of gratitude. What is it exactly about this work of art that elicits my sense of thanks? How does approaching an artwork with an attitude of thanks allow me to see more and to see, hear, and feel more deeply? And how does this expand my sense of who I am, my sense of the world, my sense of life's possibilities? And how, as I come to articulate answers to these questions, do I forge new connections with myself, with the world, and with others? Another way to put this is that thinking about our relationship to art in terms of gratitude is a way of acknowledging dependence, of recognizing that art gives us something that nourishes us, makes us more alive. The same is true more so when we think about love, or what Smith calls erotics. In love, one moves out into the world, towards others, and in religious contexts, towards God, by engaging in spiritual exercises of critical fidelity. We do talk, for good reason, as I've mentioned, about falling in love, for there is always an element of passivity in it. Yet, it doesn't simply happen, for love, in the fullest sense of the word, is always a critical practice, as well as an emotional state, a practice that takes place on the boundaries of passivity and activity. It involves developing the kind of openness to the world and others that enables one to fall in love or to give oneself to another and be dependent on another. 
It involves the fidelity by which one allows a relationship to mature. It is in some a practice of dependence. This is particularly clear when we turn to theology as a discourse of fidelity and love for God. Faith is never just a matter of affirming belief in God. It is not just an intellectual position, but a practice of trust and commitment by which one gives oneself over to a process of finding oneself in one's world anew in response to God. This is why Rowan Williams argues that theological integrity has to root itself in the silence and listening of contemplative prayer. Consider reverence or piety or worship. In the secular literature of critique and criticism, these are often represented as, represented as archetypical enemies of critical thinking, as modes of credulity or naive forms of attachment that block critical interrogation. Sometimes, even often, this is true. But we must also consider at least some forms of reverence and worship as receptive and responsive disciplines of discernment by which human beings come to see themselves anew in enacting trust and commitment in God. Revering God, and here I'm only channeling Augustine, one works out what it is to be a finite creature that loves. One engages in a constant turning to oneself in one's life with others to inquire into what it is, what and who it is that one loves, why one loves them, and whether one loves them rightly. Love for God is the working out, not just the feeling, of all our loves. And this is why, to conclude, I'm trying to argue that theology is a, as a practice, uh, trying to argue that theology is a practice of critical fidelity and has much to teach us about critique. The problem with critique today is it is overinvested in methods of exposure, decoding, and genealogy that reduce attachments and bonds by which we live to relations of interest and power. That is, critique too often practice, is practiced as a hermeneutics of suspicion. Suspicion, of course, can lead us to important and revealing directions. But the world reveals itself to us as well, often in unexpected and deep ways, when we engage it through practices of trust, commitment, and fidelity. But this demands, to put it, put it in Judith Butler's terms, they are willing, that we are willing to take the risk of unknowing. This is where theology has much to contribute. It is one of our most sophisticated discourses of critique precisely because it understands that certain affirmations of unknowing make certain kinds of knowledge and relationship possible. Theology seeks to articulate knowledge about God in the awareness that it can never capture or grasp God in any full way, and it understands that our fragile knowledge of God is as much aesthetic and erotic as it is intellectual. Fidelity, gratitude, patience, Renunciation of grasping knowledge, the willingness to be held in place by another so as to be challenged and unsettled. All of these are practices at the heart of theology and make it an exemplary practice of following signs of life. This is not to say that suspicion is absent from theology. Sin is everywhere, distorting our relationships to ourselves and others and inherent in our institutions and our politics. But theology, to add to what I've already said, is also our most developed and insightful thinking about grace and forgiveness. Among other things, grace and forgiveness interrupt the destructive relentlessness of suspicion and so, to re and so redirect critical thought and practice by freeing it to think and cultivate new bonds of trust and love. Working out this freedom, as both Butler and Smith attests, is risky business, for it is not a matter of applying a code that is claimed to be God-given, but a matter of reason and imagination, discernment and responsibility beyond the law. Again, Judith Butler, to be undone by another is a primary necessity, an anguish to be sure, but also a chance to be addressed, claimed, and bound to what is not me. 
It seems to me that this idea has been nowhere more insightfully and rigorously worked out than in our theological traditions. It should not be surprising then that Butler ends her passage this way. If we speak and try to give account, give an account from this place of an unknowingness, we will not be irresponsible, or if we are, we will surely be forgiven. Thank you. savvy. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Tyler. Um, I have a, I, I suppose my question is a, a ridiculously broad one. In some sense, I, I hear you giving a theorization of critical fidelity. Um, and in some ways, if I, if I heard you right, as a kind of life of virtue, is that right? There's a, that you're thinking of critique as a kind of virtue. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my question is, um, a kind of perennial question in, in ethics is, how does a theorization of virtue inculcate this virtue? So if this is a, if, you, if, if there's a kind of critical fidelity you want both to better define, but also foster or um, fan the flame of, what do you see as the, as the practices or maybe the, the genres of writing mm -hmm. that, would, that actually inculcate this kind mm -hmm. of critical fidelity? Or do you think that the authors that you've cited um, are themselves inculcating it rather than simply theorizing it? Um, <clears throat> yes, good. Um, so uh, a couple things, I guess. Uh, first. Let me just say that when I use the term virtue here, um, I'm trying to follow rather closely with what I think um, Foucault, but probably more uh, Judith Butler is, is doing with this. And that, and that simply, I think, is that virtue describes a form of um, thinking and practice that takes place sort of on the boundary of law and ethics. That is, when our ethical, and, and this is why I'm, I bring Ted Smith in to give an example of this. This is why um, taking up something like the question of John Brown, where at least for him, and, and I find him pretty persuasive on this, um, ethical categories and legal categories just aren't allowing him to tell the story that he wants to tell, that tells uh, the story that he thinks truthfully responds and accounts for this raid, and so um, needs to needs to narrate it differently, um, and that um, he is trying to respond to it in a to to use Butler's terms in a virtuous way, right? And and he uses the term virtue in, in sometimes in, in this sense. Um, so it's a mode of thinking uh, that is trying to account for things. Um, in a way that, that ethics and law can't. Um, 
And then the question, I mean, you know, your question I think is a great one because um, it's not clear by its very nature, it's not clear that this is something that can be theorized so that we can apply a formula, <laughs> which is why for him, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's neither ethical or, or legal. Um, and so the idea of inculcating virtue as a kind of um, way of responding makes, makes perfect sense because it's something that, uh, Smith calls it free response. It's something um, that is, uh, takes place in a singular way each time you do it, right? And so it requires, I think, uh, requires the development of certain dispositions. Um, it requires uh, certain forms of deep reading and patience in the light of events. Uh, and um, how one does that, I guess, is a great question. Um, I, forms of writing. I don't think I would see it in Butler or Foucault, um, maybe Ted Smith, uh, because what you see him doing in this book, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with, with weird John Brown, um, he comes back to this question of pardon from lots of different angles, and he sort of tries to account for it in one way, he sort of gets close to what he wants, he tries to account for another way, gets close to what he wants, but he, Part of what he's doing, I think, is suggesting um, that uh, his attempt to give an account for it is going to be um, is is not one that can be uh, uh, finally uh, argued for. Um, it's one that's going to have to be persuasive but not knockdown argument. Um, and so we see him enacting this, right, in, 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 in the text. And so this may be one way. Um, but I think probably um, uh, the kinds of practices that we associate with prayer, uh, kinds of uh, practices we associate with gratitude, um, these are the ones that I think probably uh, are the ones that inculcate something like virtue as I'm using it. Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, yeah, I have a lot of questions, but I'll, I'll limit it to one for now. Um, so taking up this critical fidelity um, and sort of understanding how it, it calls into question or at least sort of exposes the limits of ethical and political categories, um, would you say that it would also kind of demand of us to um, interrogate what we would consider to be, for example, violence? Um, mm -hmm. Does it kind of require a critical re-engagement of something if we were to look at it and automatically assume that's violent? Um, because it's, so thinking through the example of Weir John Brown, um, the proximity of violence in um, the discussion um, calls into question like what might be the, the limits of this kind of approach. Um, hmm. Yeah, so. Um, maybe, uh, let me, let me say one thing and then maybe you could um, come back and, and rephrase the question just a little bit. Um, so, f you know, certainly in, in Brown's view, uh, John Brown was committing an act of violence. Um, and, you know, when he 
it, it's interesting because when he develops this idea of divine violence out of Walter Benjamin, he makes it clear that for Benjamin, or at least he, he quotes a few passages from Benjamin, which makes it sound like, in Benjamin's view, this is a he, he calls it violence, but it's bloodless violence. There isn't, it's not violence as we usually use the term. But Smith wants to say that John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry is, should be understood through the category of divine violence, and it is violent. And he's very clear on that. And he, um, this is why John Brown has to be forgiven, not justified, right? Um, nonetheless, he thinks that it is an act of violence that intervenes in a deeper violence. Um, and perhaps he's saying too that at that point in time, nothing else could have intervened except another act of violence. Um, I'm not sure he'd go that far, but I think perhaps. So how does that come at your question? I, I think you're asking something different, but I'm, I'm not sure. No, no. Um, I think it would, it would require just a litany of examples in which the category of violence would be mm -hmm. sort of volleyed. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's... that's and just yeah. the, the other point to, to emphasize here that, that I tried to make, um, and again, this goes back to Benjamin, um, you know, his point is, too, that uh, in our uh, sort of modern legal social orders, um, there's violence going on underneath all the time. Um, and there are legacies of violence at work all the time. Uh, this is the term he uses, mythic violence, that he contrasts with, with divine violence. Um, and so he sees um, political theology as, as an intervention here, right? Trying to, trying to um, uh, do something to, in, to, to, to stop the cycles of violence that just, that just build on one another. Uh, thank you very much. Very interesting and provocative. Um, I was thinking in terms of the, the category of critique, mm. would, and I maybe have missed this, and if I'm, I did, I'm sorry, uh, the language of prophecy and the prophet instead, mm. that John Brown often comes across in popular literature as a kind of prophetic figure. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking in the history of Israel, the prophets both as saying words that are out of place and unexpected, often coming from the wrong people. Mm -hmm but also that are this kind of constructive mm -hmm. showing the inadequacies of the state and its representatives, not in a way that is simply, you know, gotcha now, right. but rather to tear it down, tear it apart, so that God may reappear. Mm -hmm. And is, is that a friendly amendment to say that the language of critique is, is more or less tantamount to the language of, of the prophetic? Um. I think so. <laughs> um, let me just, um, I mean, clearly uh, um, what you've just said about prophecy here um, shares a lot with what I'm calling critique. Um, I think that one, it, I don't know if I want to call it a difference, but I guess just a caution that I put out there in, in drawing this parallel. Um, would be something like this. Um, 
as I want to use it, as I think Smith is using it. So what, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm worried about is that, you know, in some sense, you know, despite what um, uh, people like Bruce Lincoln and others that I've mentioned here say, you know, there's one very obvious way in, religious, in which religious discourse is critical. And that is, you can say, God told me to do this, or I read this in the Bible, and from that perspective, this is wrong, what I'm seeing out here in the world, right? Um, and you can, you can take something as a, a divine command, as the given way things should be, and use that as a criteria, uh, criterion for criticizing whatever you want. Um, insofar as, and, and I'm not saying this is what the prophets are doing, but I think any time you have uh, a religious voice engaging in an act of criticism, the suspicion will be on the part of many that they're simply appealing to a divine code, uh, 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 something that's written in the Bible, uh, or something, uh, something the church has put down as law as the criterion. And I think that um, what I'm trying to talk about is um, a way, a kind of fidelity that, and I think this is what Smith is doing too, that doesn't depend on simply taking as given a particular code or a particular line in the Bible or something like that. Exactly. I thought, you know, I'll just stop with this, that in part, at least my very minimal reading of the prophets of Israel was that these are not the priests, these are not the temple yes. representatives, yeah, yeah. these are not the kings. Yeah. And again, they're often illegitimate figures who have no authority, no background, no training. And they don't lay down the law so much as to say, let's go back to the basic story. Yeah. You, know, you were people in exile. You were people had no land. You were the people that God made from nothing. And in a sense, that's very frightening to the state yes. and so on like that. Yeah. And it might be also a, a recognizably religious language that would go nicely with the fidelity and theology. Yeah. And in that sense, sure. I mean, I think, I think it, it is definitely a friendly event. <laughs> Just going to scurry around. There's a second question. <laughs> Not sure. Oh, yeah. okay. There we go. Um, okay, so actually, when you started talking about um, how this free response uh, can be compared to like the erotic and the um, aesthetic, mm -hmm. it re immediately reminded me of Kierkegaard. Um, and I guess then some really pragmatic question came to me um, because. Um, in the case with John Brown, even though I'm not uh, super familiar with it, the um, kind of the imminent or worldly agent of intervention is actually the state, um, which in this particular case actually presents no problem. But in the case of, well, in the case of Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, it, we see um, Abraham, or in any other case, let's say, um, the human agent who does freely exercise this free response or this like kind of like a I see it as an if I understand you correct, correctly um, an, an act of like creative response mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. if that person actually doesn't isn't endowed with enough kind of like the humanly kind of either state or legal power how does this agent human or not um, kind of reconcile his sense of, oh, I'm doing this free response um, as he tries to engage with the rest of this imminent 
world or audience, mm -hmm. as it were. Does that? So I'm not sure. So the question is, how does this agent justify? Right, because the what he or she's doing. Because the question of justifications would still within the legal sphere, sphere, sphere still come up. It, it just kind of like get. I feel like it gets circumscribed when mm -hmm. it's the state that's giving the pardon. Well, it, it, it certainly comes up, and this is you know, uh, and, and one of the things Smith does in the book is try to trace very carefully. Um, all the ways in which one might justify John Brown in familiar terms, whether they're legal or ethical, and finds them all unsatisfactory. And so to justify, and I don't think I want to use the word justify because um, I don't think that quite strikes the right chord, but to, to make his argument that Brown should be pardoned Again, is, is, is already, he's not trying to justify Brown, right? He, but um, uh, he's trying to say we should forgive Brown. Um, so it's less a matter of justification, um, and it's a matter of, um, and, and this is why I'm, I'm using, uh, in part, the, the language of critique and criticism. That is, that it is, and this is where Kierkegaard, at least the way he tells the story, um, is perhaps not the best example because um, you don't get a sense of a lot of thinking going on there <laughs> on the part of Abraham, right? Um, and and why I'm, I'm talking about this in terms of critique is because even if you can't use certain familiar categories to justify something, the, the process that you go through in analyzing the situation in um, analyzing your responses to the situation, working through what you do, is a very intensive and thoughtful one, right? Um, and so, so that's where I'm seeing this as a form of, of critical thinking. Yeah. All right, Bobber wanted to ask a question and then Charlie is next. And then we'll also see how much time that Okay. Thank you very much for this uh, very uh, challenging um, somewhere in the background, and sometimes in the open of your lecture, you were referring to political theology. Yes. Now, I'm German, and uh, political theology is not just in Germany related to Karl Schmitt. Mm -hmm. We have a whole generation from after the World War I to 1933. Mm -hmm who in the name of theology identified a crisis. Yes. The crisis was uh, the democracy, uh, the crisis was individualism, the crisis was rationalism, and the crisis was, of course, enlightenment. And they allied with this, in this type of reasoning where they identified a huge crisis that allowed only to a critical attitude towards the four issues mentioned. Mm -hmm. They allied with this criticism with the German lawyers, mm -hmm. constitutional lawyers. Like and Schmidt. That, and that is an alliance that lasted equally from the end of the First World War to 45. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I hear political theology, I th 
think of something very different than the ambiguity that you mm -hmm. that you unfold here. But I see the uh, the potential of a totalizing mm -hmm. uh, destruction of the law, mm -hmm. of rationality, of human life. And uh, I see this as a danger, and I didn't see that danger coming out clearly enough in your lecture. Okay. And I wanted in, to, to add just one word. It's a question on, on a word that I don't know. It's undone or undoing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to translate that. <laughs> Trying to remember where that word comes in in the lecture. Um, it comes in back Yeah. Um, so, uh, I think that, you know, the, the place where your concern does emerge um, in, in the talk would be, and, and certainly where I see um, someone like Ted Smith responding to these kinds of concerns, is when he contrasts Schmidt with Walter Benjamin. Um, and um, is quite clear that uh, Schmidt's way of thinking about political theology was deeply, deeply flawed and problematic because of the way he collapsed the sovereign and the Fuhrer. Um, and so what he sees Benjamin doing is trying to reject that approach to political theology um, by keeping a space for sovereignty that is transcendent, essentially, that only uh, uh, comes in as the negation of um, certainly certain worldly uh, orders. Um, and I think that, you know, I'd be interested to talk uh, further about this just in the sense that, okay, so there was this period post-World War I where this kind of thinking emerges in Germany um, with terrible effects. Why has political theology reemerged in late 90s, 2000s? Um, it's not just Ted Smith, it's uh, Agamben, um, it's Paul Kahn, it's uh, Simon Critchley, um, it is everywhere. And are there things we, are there parallels that we need to be looking at that might make us more suspicious of the recent reemergence of political theology, which is, as far as I can tell for the most part, um, is uh, not the kind of political theology that Schmidt was was practicing. Yeah, but you don't need Schmidt. That's why we have a whole set yeah. of theological positions that agree on the crisis as the justification of the critical denunciation of democracy, rationalizing, the right center. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, what I would say is that in, in the more recent versions, um, I would say it's left-centered. Um, and like what Smith's doing, um, I think it is not a denunciation of democracy. It's not a denunciation of uh, human rights. But it is, it is 
raising the question, I think, of how we ground those values. Um, and it is trying to be critical, critically aware of the points at which the way we ground those values may in fact run counter to them, may subvert them in some way. Um, I think in the interest of time, we should probably take Charlie's question, and then we can, um, which may be the last, we'll see again how long it takes Charlie to pose it, and how long it takes <laughs> Tyler to address it. Uh, I'm going to try to circle back to the question that Barbara was just asking, but in a slightly different way. Someone asked me to say in one sentence what you were saying, I would say that what you did for us is you offered to us uh, a very valuable updating of the opposition between hermeneutics of suspicion and hermeneutics of retrieval with recourse, mm -hmm. one that's adequate because the side of the hermeneutics of retrieval has atrophied so much that we can't use it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the turn to and the offering of critique in that way, and so you have criticism on one side, the hermeneutics of suspicion, the type is Bruce Lincoln, and then uh, Foucault and Butler on the other side as critique. And so it's very, very valuable. Mm -hmm. The thing, though, because the shadow of Ricoeur is there, and this will come to what Barbara is saying, is that Ricoeur, when he had those two types, suspicion and retrieval, offered this other thing of the second naivete, mm -hmm. which was the combination of the movement through the two, which, in fact, is uh, Foucault's life. You spoke about the, the late Foucault. Yeah but didn't mention the early Foucault at all. And it's the early Foucault that is all criticism. Yeah. And so that what Barber is, is pointing to, you could say, if you don't have a movement, the inculcation of the person, to go back to Charlie Stein, the movement through criticism and only go to critique, the result will be the risk of totalitarianism. Good. Uh, so. So, so there are two essays, well, I guess it's three essays, um, that I've been teaching for a long time. Um, I taught them for the first time here at Harvard, um, back maybe when Charlie was a student. <laughs> um, and I think I've taught them so many times and read them so many times that it's like I can't separate myself from them any longer and I forget when I'm articulating somebody else's ideas. <laughs> um, but the essays are Rowan Williams's The Suspicion of Suspicion, which uses Ricoeur, and then Ricoeur's two essays, um, and now I'm forgetting the name, so I think it's the language, one is called The Language of Faith, and the other is The Language of Criticism, or something along these lines. But, um, you know, everything that you've, you've, you've mentioned here um, is definitely in the background here, and I think your characterization of what I'm doing is, is, is right. Um, the thing that I've always been Um, unsure about with Ricoeur and maybe disappointed is a better word, is that this idea of second naivete seems to me to be um, just not developed enough. And, and you, you just characterize it in a very nice way. Um, but I've always been frustrated as I've tried to work through that, what exactly that means. Um, but um, to get to your, your, your main point, 
um, it seems absolutely right that the the late, to put it in terms of Foucault, the late Foucault without the early Foucault is really problematic. Um, that political theology without um, a deep sense of the criticism of religion is really problematic. Um, and so it doesn't perhaps come out as clearly here, but uh, I did try to say a couple times, you know, that, that that those, you know, Nietzsche, for example, um, uh, but more recent thinkers too, um, I can buy almost everything those critics of religion say, <laughs> except it seems incomplete to me. Um, and so the tools that have been developed um, to criticize religion and to develop critique more generally out of the critique of religion um, are certainly things that we can't, we can't lose. Is that? Just to I, I would agree with what you're saying about the second naivete. Mm -hmm. But the power of what you did of kind of retrieving for us the hermeneutics of retrieval, saying, oh, we need a better one to just say, oh, we don't have any masters of retrieval. Mm -hmm. But Foucault may be one of the ones where we start to see, oh, if we focus on him and not someone like Eliana we may come up with some adequate idea of what a second naivete will look like. And you're the person to do it. Thank you. I, I'm going to suggest that we conclude the, um, the formal question and answer with that tantalizing idea of whether we have masters of retrieval amongst us. Um, and, uh, and, and say, if Tyler, you have stamina, perhaps folks can come up to you after the formal Q&A. But let's conclude this with thanking you, Tyler, for what a, a wonderful lecture.